Hi, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Blame It on the Aliens. I'm your host, Callie. And this week, we are back with some true crime could have been type of stories. And we've got abandoned buildings, creepy Uber drivers, someone breaking into the home and being stalked and almost being kidnapped as a kid. So with that being said, also did not want to forget to tell you guys that if you are listening on Spotify, you can scroll down to the description of this episode and you can let me know your direct thoughts about it. What story was your favorite? What do you want to hear next week? And just your thoughts about the podcast in general. And you can also vote on the poll that I have up for this episode. So that's just a fun little way for you guys to interact directly with me from my Spotify listeners. For everybody else in in general, don't forget if you're enjoying this podcast to rate, review, and subscribe and follow me on social media, which is linked in the description as well. With that being said, and without further ado, let's get into it. in food service, front of house. So in the early days of the pandemic with restaurants closed, I was taking work wherever I could find it. An old friend clued me into a medical office that needed someone to come in and do a bit of light filing. I was able to go in at night to limit direct contact with people. So I jumped at the opportunity right away. Ironically, the medical office job had been the safest gig I'd been offered thus far COVID-wise. I wanted to avoid the bus if I could due to crowds, so decided to swing for a rideshare app. It's not all that expensive in my area and I really didn't want a virus. I headed in at almost 3 a.m. because it was after the cleaning crew had left. I was kicking myself for being so cautious though because I was exhausted. I stumbled onto the block looking for my ride and to my tired self's great relief, the car spotted me almost immediately and pulled up asking Uber while I cluelessly wandered up and down the street searching. The ride was taking a while, but I'd only just moved here last year, so I'm not familiar with all the surrounding areas and thought nothing of it. I was pretty alert at first, so was just trying to pass the time playing games on my phone and stuff. But the car didn't have a compatible phone charger and I wasn't sure the building would have one so I wanted to save my battery to be able to call a ride back. I shut my phone down into airplane mode and eventually drifted off from a combination of tiredness and boredom. I don't often take rideshare, so being alone with a strange driver often put me a bit on edge, but this guy had a pretty boring car and a very standard look about him. He looked a little like my brother even. Young, clean-kept, listening to jazz, nothing that screamed, you need to micromanage this trip. When we arrived, the driver tried to wake me up by calling to me from the front, but I was in too deep of a sleep and couldn't fully distinguish it from a dream. Finally, he awkwardly jimmied my leg to wake me up and kept saying, ma'am, ma'am, we're here now. I was embarrassed that I'd been that out, so I just gave a hurried thanks and booked it out of the car and into the building. As I looked around, I began to realize nothing was what I had expected of an office park. I'd seen a street view of the building when I first looked up the business and it had appeared to be a strip mall plaza. The further I went, the more loudly alarm bells were ringing in my gut. The structure was semi-dilapidated and it was pitch black dark past the entryway. I expected some lights to be off in the nighttime, but not the whole building. I skittered across the concrete foundation, comprising what was left of the lobby area, told myself they must just be renovating, and followed signs for the stairs. After what felt like ages, but was likely just a few minutes, all I had passed was construction equipment, a couple of locked doors, and some smashed windows. 
I was certain I was not going to find a medical office and figured maybe I had mixed up the address. I took out my phone to double check, but once I got it out of airplane mode, I could barely get a signal. I kept moving around in the building, pacing, looking for a stronger signal. And I eventually confirmed in my text that I had written down the correct address just by scrolling back, which didn't require service. Since I had only been inside for a few minutes at most, I figured I should try and get in touch with the driver because if I entered the correct address, that it was only fair that he should continue my ride to the correct place and save me the added fees of calling a second trip, considering this was all his mix-up. The app was taking forever to load with my slow service, but before I could get to a clot of reception, I heard a rustling sound in the lower level of the building. I was on the top floor, and the only stairwell I was aware of was the one I had taken up. So what forced me into the middle of the building, and there was no way to exit the situation without encountering whoever was downstairs. In an abandoned building in the latest hours of the night, I figured that the chances were high that it was a tweaker, and I had no desire to try slipping past a tweaker, especially when it was late enough that they were probably on edge or something. I tried to get a text out to a group of friends with my address and request to call 911 to help me get from the property because I didn't feel safe walking in that neighborhood at night and didn't have enough reception to call a new ride. But the message wasn't sending. Reception was too weak. So I gave up on getting my phone going and started checking for another stairwell or even window with balconies or dumpsters that could be used to exit the second floor as a last resort in the event that whoever was downstairs came upstairs. I scrambled over to a door with a stairs sign on it. The stairs were completely dilapidated, and it was essentially just a straight drop down to the first floor. At that point, the worst-case scenario began to unfold. I heard whoever was downstairs begin making their way up the stairs. I thought fast and figured based on my walk around the floor, which was basically a giant loop. I would have to wait for whoever this was to come up the stairs, wait for them to come all the way up, and then sprint the opposite direction of wherever they were going and try to get down the stairs and out of the building in time to make it to the road without encountering them. I was not anticipating being chased or anything, but didn't want to piss off a druggie or have a homeless person who might be living there feel as though I'd trespassed and become hostile towards me or have any sort of interaction that could possibly occur at that hour in an abandoned industrial park. I held my breath for what felt like five minutes, but was likely closer to just 30 seconds, and the person appeared at the top of the stairs. To my great relief, it was just the Uber driver. I figured he had come back for me, realizing he had left me in the wrong spot place that could have worked out to be dangerous. So I came out from the beam I was hidden behind and started to wave him down. But then I processed there was no way for him to realize this had been the wrong address. My stomach lurched forward and my blood chilled to slush. I made eye contact with him very briefly and he was completely calm and composed but breathing pretty heavily and blocking the stairwell down. On a normal rational day, as an outside observer, I could think of a dozen innocent reasons he might have returned. But in the moment, standing across from him, I just knew in my gut that this was someone with ill intent. I can't remember much more from the ensuing few minutes. Operating solely on muscle memory and instinct, I superman dove for the second stairwell's opening and just let myself fall down the drop. Thankfully, I don't think he'd seen where I'd gone at first. And though I was in too much pain to know it then, plenty was bruised, but nothing was completely broken. I scrambled up and threw myself at anything that seemed like it could be the door. It was too dark to tell, and I was disoriented from the fall. I wasn't in a calm enough mindset to think to use my phone flashlight. And plus, in hindsight, 
Some part of me probably knew it would call too much attention to my location. Just before I was able to reach the door, it flew open with a blinding light beaming straight into my eyes. My first thoughts, though not totally coherent, was, there's another one of these guys. And I stumbled backwards trying to find somewhere to hide. But before I could, a voice called out, all right, this is the name of town police department. Everyone get on your knees with your hands in the air. I didn't believe it was the police at first. I was in such a fight or flight mode that I'd already committed to flight and I continued looking for ways to get out. But he kept shining the flashlight right at me as I teetered around and yelled, hey, I sat on the ground right now, hands out, hands out where I can see them. He sounded so authoritative that I just automatically did it exactly as he asked. He approached me and finally shined the light away from me. It took a second to get my night vision, but once I did, I could see he was really a police officer. I tried to explain what was happening, but first he started asking me all these questions, and that, combined with what had just happened, and my fear of the driver coming back, all snowballed into my being unable to form a single articulate sentence. He was even asking an easy question like, can you tell me your name? Do you have any knives, needles, or anything that could poke or cut me? Would you rather talk in here or outside? And my total stunned babbling in response at first led him to believe that I was on something. He directed me out to his car, and once I was safely out of the building, I was able to just start to get my bearings a little. I sat on the edge of the back seat of the squad car with the door open facing out while he stood across from me and asked me some questions again. The first thing I could think to ask was, did my friends call you? What did they tell you? And he explained, no, nobody called him. He was patrolling the area and noticed a car idling outside of this building that's known to be condemned and nobody's supposed to be inside. And when they are, they're not up to no good. He was launching into a speech about how if I'd gone to shoot up or meet a John, he had resources he could direct me to and that this was not an ideal place to do either of those things and asked if I had somewhere safe to stay that night. But I was stuck on something else, he'd said. Finally, it all clicked. The car. I spilled my whole rideshare story in a frantic word vomit. He looked around and the car wasn't there anymore. The officer guessed the guy had driven off while we were talking inside the building. He asked me all the details I remembered and I told him, but there weren't many. I'd been too tired when the ride started to track much, but the officer realized I could pull up my Uber app and get all the information. There wasn't really enough reception there, even outdoors. So we sped down the road and once I had enough bars, the app roared to life. And I had four missed notifications from Uber. They said, hello, I've arrived. And I don't see you, can you confirm the pickup address is correct? and I'm flashing my hazards. And finally, unfortunately, your driver had to cancel. At first, I thought the driver was so cunning as to pick me up while sending these fake messages and canceling so the GPS wouldn't track us, knowing I wouldn't notice because I was asleep with my phone off and exonerating himself. But instead, I checked the card he tells, checked again, and it was definitely not the same driver. The person who'd driven me there had not been my Uber. My driver was somewhere else on the street when this guy pulled up to me. The policeman took my statement and said they would keep an eye out for the guy, but the best I could give them to go off of was a young-looking Caucasian man with brown hair, sideburns, a goatee, and a four-door sedan, wearing a zip-up sweatshirt, maybe had a hood, which is like one out of every four guys in this city. I feel so blessed to have survived this near miss. And suffice it to say, I do not take rideshare services anymore. Quadruple check your license plate and driver name because you just never know.
When I was 13, the dawning of a new millennium took place on New Year's Eve. While people were fearing the worst with the Y2K bug or out partying and drinking, I was home alone. In 1996, my parents had split up and from there they divorced and my mother and I moved across the country from Oregon to Tennessee with her best friend. On the eve of the year 2000, I was home alone and my mother was currently out of the state. Now this didn't worry me as this wasn't the first time. I often came home to find the note on the kitchen counter saying that they had gone to Florida for a few days and that there were groceries in the fridge. Since the divorce, she was regularly leaving me alone for long periods of time to go to Florida. We lived on a relatively quiet road, surrounded by trees and set a few miles out of town. And I knew most of the people, if not by name, then by face, enough to wave and small chat with. And I'd never been before given a reason to be afraid of being alone. On the night in question, I was staying up late watching television. I remember I was watching the movie His Bodyguard on USA Channel and had most of the lights on in the house. Not because I was afraid, but because at 13, I wasn't concerned with electricity bills or saving the environment. I felt completely safe and protected within my little bubble of a home. As I was watching the movie, I kept hearing these sounds outside, but I remember thinking it was probably the neighbors. Though they weren't extremely close, a couple of them were having a party or people over for the holiday. But about halfway into the movie, however, the power in the house suddenly went dead. And I sat on the couch for a minute, just sort of in a panic daze because it was nearly midnight and pitch black. I remember thinking the power must have gone out and that it would come back on. So I just decided to sit on the couch with my blanket and wait. A few minutes passed by when I heard a noise in the kitchen where the back door is. My heart started racing in my chest because I thought it sounded like the back door being shut. The back door sits just off the dining room, which is connected to the kitchen, which leads directly into the living room where I was currently sitting on the couch. A few minutes passed after I heard the sound and I was straining my ears to pick up anything that wasn't supposed to be there. Every noise suddenly felt magnified. When footsteps sounded on the ground, I immediately slithered off the couch onto all fours, crawled around the ottoman, and started as slowly and as quietly as I could make my way toward the space between the love seat and the couch. I knew I could fit under the side table and be completely hidden by the dark of the ottoman from playing hide-and-go-seek in the dark many, many times with my friends during sleepovers. I was nearly there when the footsteps became more apparent I knew from the sound of them that whoever it was was making their way through the kitchen now toward the living room. They weren't hurried or anything. It was like they were just moving around in the kitchen. I glanced up from where I was crouched on the floor and to my horror, there was a dark silhouette standing in the archway between the two rooms. To my credit, I didn't scream. However, I did panic. I stood immediately to my feet from my hiding spot and ran down the hallway. And I believe the only reason I wasn't overcome was because the person chasing me had to get around the ottoman in the dark to follow me. I did what all children do when they're afraid, and I bypassed the front door, the guest bedroom, the bathroom, and ran to the farthest door down the hallway, my room. And in all honesty, I probably wouldn't have been able to get the front door unlocked and open in time anyway as it was right off the side of the couch. When I was 10, I got a bird for my birthday, and he was a blue-fronted Amazon, and I named him Boo because it was October and close to Halloween. Well, Boo had a large iron cage. It could have been metal, but very large, sturdy, and like six feet tall. And it was kept in my room, despite the fact that Boo, like me, pretty much had the run of the house whenever he wanted. This information will become relevant later in the story. And as I ran into my room, I slammed the door shut and locked it. However, the lock was simply one of those little turn knobs that you can easily pop open with a butter knife. 
I had barely gotten the door shut and locked when the person on the other side knocked on it. I have no idea why they knocked. If they did it to mock me or to scare me, but I knew in my heart that my little lock was not going to keep whoever it was on the other side out of my room. It didn't keep my mother out when we were arguing and it wouldn't stand up to brute force. I was panicking on the verge of tears when the person started laughing. It was low, quiet, and because of that, it was even more frightening. It wasn't like manic laughter, but as they were genuinely amused. It was the laughter that really frightened me. And I started heavily hysterically crying and looking around my room to figure out what I could do. That was when I realized Boo's cage was going to fit almost perfectly between the door and the wall of my closet. The cage moved quietly on the carpet floor, but as I pushed it into place, it scraped against the door and alerted whoever it was on the other side that I was trying to barricade myself in because suddenly they threw themselves at my door and you, I mean, you could hear the sound of the wood splintering and the door handle being twisted violently. Boo, who had been stirred by the movement awake, began literally screaming and flapping his wings. I might have screamed with him, but honestly, I don't remember. I just remember being extremely scared. Terrified, I crawled under my bed or couch, a bunk bed with a futon on the bottom metal, and waited several minutes past, and the person eventually stopped attacking my door. Boo continued screaming even after he had stopped, though being under my bed gave me no feelings of being secure. I didn't come out from under my bed, and I, I mean, I had simply nowhere else to go. I thought about trying to go out the window, but I was afraid he might expect it and therefore be waiting for me on the other side. And it was also several feet off the ground as the house was built on a raised foundation. I remember laying under my bed, terrified for what felt like hours. I must have fallen asleep because I awoke the next morning to daylight. The fear of what happened came back to me as soon as I registered where I was and why and scared that whoever had been in my house might still be there. I decided to crawl out of the window and run to a neighbor since it was daylight outside now, and therefore I felt less afraid. Crawling out of a window is a lot harder than it looks, and I did it less than gracefully, as it was not and am still not. I'm just generally not the most coordinated human being. Once I was back on my feet, however, I carefully made my way around the house, and that's when I noticed the back door was wide open. Scared, but feeling braver now that I was outside and that it was morning instead of pitch black night, I walked up the back steps and peered inside. Seeing nothing out of the ordinary, no terrifying man leering at me, basically, I decided to go inside. Looking back, I cringe on how stupid this could have been, and that I wish I could have told my younger self to make the smarter move and just go get help. But thankfully, no one was inside the house. I did a terrifying, heart-pounding room-to-room check, looking in closets and under beds, behind the couch, anywhere I even thought a small child might be able to fit. I even popped the lock on my mom's bedroom so I could check it, and then relocked it afterwards. When I was positive there was no one there, I went back to the lock of the back door. I had left it open because in case I needed to escape and noticed that the breaker box on the opposite wall was open and the main switch had been pulled. I flipped it back on, locked both locks on the back door and checked all of the windows and the front door and then called my mom where I once again broke down hysterically crying. She called a coworker who came and stayed the entire day with me as they drove back. My mom still took random trips to Florida after that, but I always went with her from then on forward. So, terrifying, laughing, crazy person that broke into my house on New Year's Eve, please, let's never meet again. And I sincerely hope no other young girl had to meet you either. I don't know if you were just some drunk visitor or neighbor, but you terrorized me that night. I was... Afraid of being alone when my mom was working, and to this day, I still get scared when I'm home alone. 
and I overthink what I would do if somebody came inside and where I would hide. When my cats make a noise out of nowhere, I immediately investigate it for fear. It's someone trying to get in. I, 40 female, went to the University of Buffalo fresh out of high school in the early 2000s. At that time, the online world was a bit like the Wild West, which included having to do quite a bit more digging to find specific information than today's split-second Google search. As such, it was a much easier time for colleges and universities to hide or spin campus crime statistics to make themselves look better for prospective wallets. I mean, students. Case in point, I was at an orientation a month or two before my freshman year, and one of the mass presentations I had to attend was about campus safety. Bright-faced upperclassmen orientation aides enthusiastically verbally flated the school, boasting about how North Campus was in, at the time, the safest town in the country, Amherst, New York and that the only murder in recent history had occurred nine years ago to an unfortunate student named Linda Yalem, who was murdered on the campus's bike path during a lone early morning run. It was a fate that we were assured could be avoided by simply not hitting the bike path alone. What they conveniently didn't reveal was that A, the killer hadn't been caught, and B, Yalem wasn't his only victim. He was a serial rapist and eventual serial killer who had already been active in the area for at least 25 years in downtown Buffalo and on the secluded bike paths of the Buffalo suburbs. In retrospect, had this information been as readily accessible as it is now, it probably would have kept me from the most bone-chilling encounter of my life. Fast forward three years. I was a very depressed 20-year-old who was struggling with her sexual identity and her parents' reaction to it in a much less accepting time than now. I'd left school and, to avoid being home, shacked up with the woman who promised me the world but then rejected me in favor of her ex-girlfriend on the night I moved in and eventually turned out to be a felon who drained vulnerable, would-be love interests' bank accounts though that's a very convoluted story for another time. So clearly, I was an unhappy young adult, desperate for love and a sense of belonging, sometimes to my own detriment. Despite my roommate's many unkind and hurtful gestures, I stuck with it in the naive hope that she would eventually come around and fulfill her pie-in-the-sky promises to me. On a particular July night, that hope just fell flat. I was at Roxy's Green Room, a now defunct lesbian bar and club that many wayward Buffalo lesbians, myself included, flocked to at night to feel a much needed sense of community and to hopefully land a special someone. Since the latter just wasn't happening for me and since I didn't know yet what kind of person she really was, I was still stuck on my roommate. She liked to dangle emotional carrots overhead out of some sick joy that she just got from making me hurt, but also hang on to hope. And after a promise to hit Roxy's alone with me and talk about us, she showed up with her ex turned current and shut me out. I was wounded and upset enough to leave around 1 a.m., well before the 4 a.m. last call that I was still young and spry enough to stomach, and without a ride home like my usually wiser self would have secured. While my apartment on Delaware was walking distance from Roxy's, it was a good half-hour walk. Being as emotionally charged as I was, though I angrily hoofed it down the main street sidewalk, still managing to follow the pedestrian rule of walking against the traffic despite stupidly ignoring a rule I knew well from years of watching forensic shows. If you're a woman, never leave a bar at night alone, especially if you're walking. 
I got exactly halfway home when a dark green sedan started driving toward me. I thought nothing of it until the car slowed down near me as I walked. A lone middle-aged man was in the car with the skin tone that I originally associated with the guy being Italian, but in retrospect, he could have easily been Puerto Rican. He had dark hair and, most importantly, almost impossibly dark eyes that seemed to hold no light of good intentions. No, I was used to guys being pigs. I'd been catcalled by downtown construction workers when an ex-girlfriend and I shared a kiss, and I'd endured all matter of wholly unwanted graphic and ham-fisted advances from dudes at school. And although I'd never taken the stance that I was asking for it, I was young and thin, so I was dressed in a tight red crop top with flare-legged black spandex pants. The get-up was meant to turn women's heads, so I wasn't exactly surprised that I caught the attention of the wrong sex. I paid it little never mind past mild irritation that a guy old enough to be my dad would look at me like that as the guy drove off and turned at the next intersection behind me. My walk resumed, I put the guy out of my mind and I continued my trek. But the peace didn't last. About two or three minutes later, I see a familiar green car coming up on me again. This time, the guy's windows was down a bit and he shouted, hey, in a beckoning manner and gestured in a way that made me wonder if he thought I was a lady of the night. Now, that incensed me. Despite my recent struggles with my identity and the resulting entropy in my life, I was always a good kid. I flashed him a quick annoyed look to inform him that despite the mildly revealing clothing, he was barking up the wrong tree for several reasons, and then I ignored him, focusing forward. He sped off again and turned again. At that point, it was clear that the dude was casing me like a cat burglar cases a house. It was before the time of Uber or even widespread use of cell phones with no cabs passing by. I had little hope of getting one. Public transit existed, but it was both sparse and not running nearby. The stretches of Maine between intersections were long and I'd probably be spotted on them anyway since the guy was circling. Being 15 minutes away from both Roxy's and my home, there was also no way I could get anywhere near either place before the green car came back around again. I quickly thumbed through my mental Rolodex of true crime show inspired safety tips that should have kept me out of this situation in the first place. Tip number one, get to an open business, inform the clerk, have him or her call the police and stay put. Then the guy would either give up or get caught. I was coming up on the convenience store on the opposite side of the street where I'd bought a pack of cigarettes earlier in the night, but as I got closer, the desolate blackness through the windows told me that it was closed. I looked around for something else, another bar, gas station, anything, but the street was flanked by shuttered brick buildings and a locked up church. Then came the headlights and green again. And again, the guy slowed down as he approached me, but his demeanor had shifted again. He put his palm out impatiently as if he couldn't understand my lack of complicity. Come on, the guy yelled through his now open window, his face an equal picture of aggression, intimidation, and frustration. I kept out of arm's reach of the sidewalk and once again ignored him, but this time I was properly shaken. He angrily punched the gas and was off on his familiar circuit back around to me. Now I knew I was in trouble. The guy's behavior was escalating and I was genuinely scared that his next move would be to grab me off the sidewalk and pull me into his car. From there, God only knew what sort of depravity I was for. I scrambled through my memory for another safety tip and I remembered that making myself both impossible to ignore and obviously in distress could get me some much needed attention from an outside party. I ran into the middle of the main street and started frantically waving my hands and shouting at every car that was coming my way. The first car drove by, the second car drove by, 
The terror in me was palpable. I knew the stories of city dwellers like Kitty Genovese, who were left to their horrible fates at the hands of monsters by jaded throngs of people who heard the attacks perpetrated on them and their cries for help, but did nothing out of both an assumption that someone else would step up and a reluctance to get involved. Would I be the next victim of the bystander effect? Snatched away to an early and because of big city indifference? As I was beginning to lose hope, but still determined to keep trying while thinking of my next bold move, a van pulled over that had four black guys in it. And as a white woman, I was relieved. I knew that statistically male predators overwhelmingly tend to prey on women of their same race. In a game of numbers, this van full of guys was exponentially safer than that single stalker in the green car. And I opted to take the gamble. I frantically told them about the man in the green car who kept circling around the block and following me and begged for a ride home. The driver asked if I had any money in exchange for the favor. I didn't. Then he asked if I had any cigarettes. I may be one of the only people you'll ever meet who actually had her life saved by smokes. Though I have never been a smoker before, I briefly picked up a filthy habit because of New York State bars still allowing smoking, and it was a weird part of a Buffalo lesbian bar culture that I emulated to fit in. Yet another way that I was, as are many, kind of an idiot in my early 20s. Yes, I answered urgently. I just bought a pack and you can have the whole thing if you get me home. Admittedly, I was initially a little miffed that the driver wanted something from me in exchange for not letting me be abducted off the street, as well as the implication that he may not have helped me if I had nothing. Still, I had the Marlboros, and he had a vehicle, and the stars had hopefully aligned. Regardless of how it went down, I'd help if he let me in, and the details didn't matter. After a second or two of thought, which seemed like an eternity to me, the driver agreed and one of the two dudes in the back opened the side door for me and got out so I could slide into the seat behind the driver. As the door to my safe carriage full of impromptu nights shut and I got buckled in, I looked out my window just in time to see the green car creeping past the van and proving to my saviors that I was telling a very disturbing true story. Until my dying day, I will never forget that man's eyes. Feeling safe surrounded by a closed van full of young, tough-looking rescuers, I looked that bastard dead in the eyes. Part of me was rightfully terrified, but another part of me wanted to look right at him defiantly and tell him with my eyes, I got away from you. I win. I was repaid with the most evil, hateful look that I've ever had directed at me, let alone seen. His eyes were black. I mean, black like a cat's eyes when it sees a bug in the house and its hunting instincts cause its peoples to blow to allow more light in. But at least there's usually a hint of playful mischief in the hunting cat's eyes. The eyes I was seeing were those of a pure, unadulterated predator. And the vitriol that practically oozed from them as he glared at me, let me know exactly how he felt about his prey having the audacity to elude him. He drove off into the night and so did we, in a bit less direct route to make sure that we lost him. After a blessedly quick jaunt with frequent looks behind my shoulder, I was delivered home one pack of cigarettes short but alive and in one piece. The first thing that I did when I got there was to check the locks and absolutely everything. After that, the adrenaline started to wear off and the pure fear set in. I was so terrified that the man in the green sedan was searching the area when I got dropped off that I grabbed the cordless phone, then lay completely flat on my living room floor for hours to keep totally out of sight of any of my apartment windows. As I lay there, I called the Buffalo police and relaying my terrifying tale in as much detail as I could give them. Being painfully aware of the prevalence of hate crimes against the LGBT community at the time, I told the cops that it was possible that the man was cruising near to Roxy's to prey on vulnerable queer women who were out and about. 
in hindsight, I think the guy just saw who he thought was an easy mark out by herself and availed himself of the opportunity to strike. Fast forward another four years and I'd moved out to Chicago to live with my then girlfriend. For about half of my four years there, I was pretty homesick. I'd never lived anywhere except my home state of New York and I went there knowing no one except my ex who wasn't exactly an empathetic soul, adding to my feelings of isolation. I coped by keeping up on the upstate New York news so I'd feel a little less far away. On a chilly mid-January morning in 2007, I was at our computer looking up headlines from my home state when one from WBFO popped up that immediately snared my attention. Bike Path Rapist is Arrested. By then, I knew the moniker well. The internet had since aged into a beautifully organized repository of sometimes knowledge and Despite the lack of transparency from my alma mater, I became familiar with the Buffalo area mystery man and his active status throughout my time in Buffalo. Now I had a name for the spectator responsible for that bit of eeriness that was always in the back of my mind when I was a student. The bike path rapist was revealed as Altimio Sanchez a middle-aged native of Puerto Rico who coached his son's sports teams and was affectionately referred to as Uncle Al in his neighborhood. As with many other killers, his disguises were his community involvement and just being ordinary. The man was estimated to have been responsible for nine to 15 rapes around the Buffalo area since 1975 and had confessed to three murders the Yalem murder in 1991, a second in 1992, and a third, which had occurred three and a half months prior to his capture. I don't know if you've ever felt your heart somehow get wedged up into your voice box and get dropped into the depths of your stomach simultaneously, but believe me when I say that it's possible given the right catalyst. For me, that catalyst was the printed proof that the man was active while I lived in Buffalo and frequented Roxy's. More so, I knew that serial killers rarely take breaks as lengthy as the one between his 1992 and 2006 killings. He had to have at least been attempting to sate his evil impulses for those 14 years. That realization gave me a very, very bad feeling that I'd cross paths with someone much more dangerous than I'd realized. The news article had no picture of Sanchez, but the sickening feeling in me prodded me to find one. It was almost as if I knew what I would see before I even looked at him. I Yahoo searched his name because that was still a respectful means of finding things on the internet in 2007. And I was horrified though not surprised to see those same black, soulless, predatory eyes that I looked into four times on that summer night in Buffalo in 2003. The timeline fit. My profile as a victim fit if he did in fact mistake me for a downtown prostitute. And barring all else, I knew those eyes. I had a potentially deadly close encounter with Altimio Sanchez, the bike path rapist, AKA the bike path killer. My lack of sense put me in his orbit and a van of angels pulled me out of it. I know who I saw and as God is my witness, I will never be convinced otherwise. Though many of the rapes fell victims to statutes of limitation, Altimio Sanchez pled guilty to the three murders and was sentenced to 75 years to life in prison. In essence, the guy won't be exposed to the outside again unless he's in a body bag. So, bike path rapist, even if you're worm food and being wheeled out in a bag on a prison gurney, let's not meet. I'm 19 years old and living far from home in a studio room. 
I'm often up late and last week I was just doing some laundry at around 11 p.m. ish. I saw a man sitting in the lobby. I saw him around a bit at night, but I didn't think much of it. I'm in the laundry room and I just put my clothes into the dryer and I hear the laundry room door open, beeping, meaning someone was coming in. There was the man, just standing there with no clothes to wash, just staring at me. I maneuvered around him and headed to the lifts and he followed me quickly and cornered me and asked for my Snapchat. I was tired and just wanted to get back to my room so I stupidly gave it to him. I figured he'd message and try to flirt. I'd say, I have a boyfriend. So sorry if you thought this was anything else. And that would be the end of it. Anyway, he starts messaging me. It's kind of normal, but then he starts saying weird stuff like, quote, I saw you a month ago and I was impressed. I've been visiting a friend and staying here. And quote, I've been watching you. I noticed that you come out mostly at night. He told me that and that he would only be visiting for five more days. But then it gets worse. He says, quote, I love you. I can't help it. And then I say, I have a boyfriend. And he says, I only want you. And continues to completely ignore that. He asked to come to my room and I say no. And then he wanted a hug. He asked me if I lived alone and if I was a virgin. He kept saying he loved me and that I was perfect for him, that I impressed him. At that point, I recorded all the messages on Snapchat, spoke to him a little bit more to gather evidence so that I could take it to the reception in the morning. He's been watching me for a month. I got my guy friend who lives on the second floor to walk me down to the laundry room and we sat in the student lounge area and my friend calmed me down. I was shaking with adrenaline and fear. We saw him around the laundry room again looking for me but luckily I'd already been picked up. I run back to my room and my friend says that I can stay in his room, but I said, it's okay, I'll just lock my door. It's about 1 a.m. and I hear someone outside my room trying to get in. I asked my friend if he's outside my room and he just says, no, so I froze. I didn't want to make a sound. I felt sick to my stomach and helpless. Eventually, it stopped and whoever it was went away. In the morning, I reported this to reception and then went to stay a few days with my boyfriend and then after went to London to visit a friend and last night was the first time I'd spent a night in my room since this happened. I'm so paranoid now. Sadly, I should probably be used to this. It's not the first time I've been sexually harassed. One guy tried to kiss me in a club by grabbing my head and a bunch of other things have happened that I won't go into here. But anyway, I'm terrified to go outside my room after dark. I'm constantly looking over my shoulder and feeling paranoid. This happened years ago when I was barely 14. My middle school and middle school best friend at the time organized a trip abroad to Great Britain, London to be exact. It was supposed to be a few days looking at London, attractions, museums, and shops. It was fun until it wasn't. For the day before we were supposed to leave and go home, we were brought to the streets with some interesting shops. And from there we could see the Golden Freddy and we received free time for shopping. And then our teachers and guide had a brilliant idea. They told us after the time of our shopping ends, we have to meet a different street than this. In retrospect, it was like 100 meters away, but they still shouldn't have done that. Most of us never had been in London, and we're barely speaking English. We don't have a map of the city, Roaming services don't work correctly. 90% of students got lost. I got lost with my best friend because we went in a complete opposite direction. We were both confused about the directions we were even given. We were walking along the pavement. My friend was running ahead or staying behind too nervously to look around. We didn't look like we were together because we weren't exactly interacting with each other at the moment. 
and I guess that's why this happened. My friend ran ahead and stopped to look around when I saw a black car approach me and match my speed. I started to feel like this scene from a movie. It was broad daylight. There was a lot of people around and no one reacted. I was confused and didn't know what was even happening. Then from the car stepped a man and said, you're nice, come with me, and then tried to grab me. The car was still running, so I suppose someone was still in it. I was stunned. I didn't even believe it was real. At that moment, my friend ran to me from behind, grabbed me, and dragged me away. We ran and tried to lose the tail of the man, and the car followed us. After some time, we stopped, and my friend nervously cried, shaking me and screaming, Why didn't you move when the man tried to catch you? I explained my deer in headlights moment. We cooled down and managed to ask somebody for help, and we were found by our teachers. We didn't tell anyone there what happened. We were sure no one would even believe us. After that, we got back and I told my parents, and I never went on a trip organized by my school again. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Blame It on the Aliens. If you have not already rated, reviewed, subscribed, definitely do that. If you're listening on Spotify, don't forget to answer the question and vote on the poll listed in the description below. And if you are listening on Spotify, also don't forget to hit the follow button and the notification bell so that you get updates about my future episodes. If you're listening on Apple or anywhere else, definitely hit the subscribe button and leave a review. It is much appreciated. It, it helps me a lot and makes a huge difference in the show. Share it with a friend who loves the genre, etc., etc. If you have a story to share, I would love for you to send it in to the email, blame it on the aliens one at gmail.com, or you can click the link in the description and it's a lot easier for you not to type it out. You can send in a voice memo and I would love to have that as well. So I am also on social media. I am on Instagram at Blame It on the Aliens podcast. Follow me there. And I usually post and give updates about upcoming episodes or current episodes that were just posted, all the things. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. Abandoned buildings, you know, breaking into the home, having a stalker, all all the things that literally gave me chills. So I will see you guys next week with some more creepy stories. As always, if you can't explain it, blame it on the aliens, baby. 